Welcome to the Exit Coach Radio Show, the show for baby boomer business owners who are looking for cutting-edge information as they plan their 3- to 10-year business succession and exit. Every week, we interview top professional advisors for their best tips, strategies, and precautions so you can be well-planned. And don't miss our one-minute Exit Coach Tip of the Day on ExitCoachRadio.com. And now, here's your host, the Exit Coach, Bill Black. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. I'm so glad you're with us. Let me uh, let me uh, just explain what you've been listening to is a group of uh, uh, one-minute highlights from past guests, experts on everything from taxes to psychology to how you're going to uh, transition to your, your new life after you sell your business. Uh, experts from all different fields. You can find all of these at our uh, online audio library at exacoachradio.com. You'll find over 500 interviews from uh, many, many, many experts in 35 different category file folders. And that's a great way to go and use your smartphone to become an, a library of ideas and strategies and topics to open up your mind from a variety of experts. Speaking of experts, my next guest is an expert on experts. And you're going to learn uh, a lot from him. I'd, I'd grab a notepad if I were you. I'd grab a note, notepad and a pencil or a pen and get ready to take some notes. My next guest is, is Dr. Paul Shemp from University of Georgia. He's a professor there, and he has been researching uh, experts and the development of expertise. And we're going to talk about the five stages in developing expertise. It should be a very interesting interview. I'm looking forward to it. Dr. Shemp, thanks so much for joining us and welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Bill. It's nice to be with you. I'm looking thank forward you. to this. Yeah, I am too. It's it's interesting because, you know, Dr. Shemp, a lot of our guests, or excuse me, a lot of our listeners are thinking about how they can use their knowledge to develop maybe an expertise type of a practice or a knowledge-based practice. So before we get into that, tell us about how you got the idea to become um, a researcher of experts. Well, uh, it actually started out almost 30 years ago when I was graduating from my undergraduate experience, and I quickly learned that I lacked not only experience, but I lacked knowledge and skill to be good at what I really wanted to do, which at the time was coaching and teaching. And so I went back to uh, graduate school. Now, why I thought that was a good idea, I still haven't figured that one out. But I began <laughs> to learn how, learn how to do research. And when it came time for my professors to ask me, well, who would you like to study? My response was, I'd really like to study people who are very, very good at what they do. Because if I understand that, maybe I can do that too. And I can be good at what I am, or what I choose to do. So that's how I got into it. And it's just kind of snowballed uh, from there, and I've had a, a wonderful uh, opportunity to study experts in all walks of life, but mostly in sports, mostly coaches and athletes. Well, those are probably um, some of the most visible. You can see the visible results and and yeah. keep track of them most easily. But how many uh, figures do you figure or do you uh, expect that you've uh, studied over the years? Oh, um, hundreds. Uh, hundreds. You know, we, we, yeah, we, we do everything from uh, interviews or observations with single coaches or sometimes if we're interested in a particular topic. For example, uh, one of the topics we're studying now is mentoring, uh, which I thought might be something of interest to most of your listeners because uh, being getting ready to exit, they're, they're having protégés. They have people that are going to learn their knowledge and learn their skills so that, 
all the things they've been working on all their life can, can can continue. And we have found that to be a common characteristic of experts is that they've had good mentors. And so uh, most recently we did a study with basketball coaches uh, and we had probably over 80, 85, 86 coaches uh, at, from the Division One level, the NCAA, that participated in that particular study. And that's just one study. And so we've uh, we've had the opportunity to study many coaches in many different sports. But mostly we study professional uh, coaches, Olympic-level coaches, or Division One college coaches. That would be fascinating. You know, it is an interesting topic. We have a lot of listeners, of course, that are saying, I need to figure out how to package my knowledge so it can be processed go. and transitioned mm-hmm. effectively. Um, you know, mm-hmm. because a lot of our a lot of our listeners that are thirty, you know, let's say thirty year business owners, and they've taken right. in information a teaspoon at a time. If you can picture a teaspoon being poured into your head every day, and now they've got this bucket <laughs> full of information, <laughs> and and right. you can't just wash it over someone and expect them to get it all. So it would be very interesting to learn how the most effective coaches and mentors packaged if there was a packaging process to that, and then how do they dole it out. Yeah. We we find that, uh, first of all, when you talk about package, we find that the informal relationships tend to be the most powerful, uh, in, in large part because those are the ones that are personally most significant between the mentor and the protege. And so you, it's really important that they establish a personal relationship with these these people. Now I'm talking about the mentors or, if you will, the business owners. And so if they've got somebody who's coming in uh, that they see as potential to replace them as a CEO, president, whatever it might be, um, the first part that they need to do is really see if they have some mutual interest. They have to see if they have mutual values because if the values are in conflict, Nothing really is going to happen. And then finally, they have to see if they both have a commitment to this relationship. In other words, the protege has to be willing to accept what the mentor has to say in terms of their knowledge and also the skills they're willing to demonstrate. Okay. And so to develop that personal relationship, so it sounds like so the walls come down a little bit and the knowledge is is more, it's going to be receptive. And uh, the commitment, it seems like, would be directly uh, you know, I'm not going to either. I'm not going to listen to this guy. He can't teach me anything. Or I, I, I am going to listen. I, I commit to this as a, uh, mm-hmm. a mentee. Uh, and right. is part of that based on the fact that does the does the mentor have to come with respect uh, because of yes. their accomplishments baked in? Mm-hmm. There, you just mentioned one of the most important parts, and that's respect. And it has to be mutual respect. In other words, the protege. Uh, has to have respect for what the mentor has accomplished and what that mentor's knowledge base is and the skill sets that they've developed. And on the other hand, the mentor has to respect the the protege, the young person, and not for the same reasons that they can see themselves in it, but understand that this person has the energy, the enthusiasm, the will to learn, much like they did when they were that person's age. And so they're, they're not equal in terms of knowledge and skills, but they can be equal in terms of commitment to the organization or uh, equal in terms of commitment to the profession. Okay, and so they have to have a common goal, a common a common purpose, and they have to have respect and friendship. And once they mm-hmm. have that, are you finding that there are certain teaching methods that work better, uh, the most successful teaching methods that work better than others? 
That's yeah, that's what we're currently studying now, and I'm going to get to that. We missed one one key factor, and and that's trust, um, because the mentor and the mentee have to trust one another. So if the mentor shares with this protege a mistake they might have made earlier in their career or something that potentially is embarrassing, in an effort to help the protege not make the same mistake, the mentor has to trust that the protege is going to respect that and and hold that in confidentiality. And on the other hand, the protege has to feel that if if I come to you, Bill, as my mentor and I share with you some problems that I'm having, you're not going to spread that around to the rest of the organization. Or if there's something that I'm being really challenged with and I just don't think I can do this job, again, I have to trust that you're going to respect the confidentiality of our agreement. And that also is a critical element before we move on. That makes sense. Is it important that uh, that a mentor demonstrate their own fallibility to a mentee to bring them down to a humanized level and kind of share something? Is that it sound, that sounds like an integral part of the trust building relationship? Absolutely. I think you hit it on the head. But you know that has to come in time. I don't think that's the first thing that they do. Uh, we find with most really effective mentoring. Uh, the, the personal and professional relationship develops first before we really start to drill down into to the sensitive areas. Uh, and so, like any relationship, it, it has to take some time. And those of us that think that, or those people who think a mentoring relationship can happen in six months, it just doesn't work that way. Normally, it's a lifelong experience, or at least it's two or three years. And that's why I think many of the people who are your listeners that are thinking about exit strategies, uh, perhaps mentoring might be something that they might uh, consider doing with. And it doesn't have to be just one person. They can mentor two, three, four protégés. And and that's entirely a a possibility. And then when it comes time in two, three years for them to step down, then probably the protégé that looks most promising might be the one that, that grabs the golden ring, if you will. That, I think that's very important, and we always counsel business owners to start their planning for their transition or their exit early, five years or more in advance. Yes. So this yeah. is one of those early mm-hmm. things that takes a long time for it to bake, and you're going right. to get your best results. So then what's missing, uh, except for talking with you, is that process or system. How do I get started? on? What do I do in the early stages of this? So it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the first is you have to be let's let's talk as uh, to the to your listeners who are business owners or at least to high ranking officials in an organization. You have to identify the people that you think are potential proteges, uh, people who potentially you can see in your position. And that doesn't mean that they're going to be exactly like you. Uh, that to me is a fallacy. You have to recognize that these people will be their own person, but they certainly can carry on. And here's another reason that the mentoring is important is because all of our organizations have a culture. Uh, All of our, I know it's popular to call it self-branding now, Uh, we as people have cultures, values that we espouse and values that help guide our actions. And a mentor can help transfer those values, that culture to the next generation. Um, I'm doing some work with uh, Delta Airlines. Um, I don't know if you know, but the Federal Aviation Administration is is shortly going to require all commercial carriers to have mentoring programs for their pilots. 
when a, an organization like Delta or American Airlines hires a pilot, they don't hire novice pilots. They hire people who probably have somewhere in the neighborhood of eight to 10,000 flying hours. So these are experienced pilots. They have skills, but what they lack is cultural uh, aspect of being, for example, a Delta pilot. What does that really mean? Um, what kinds of standards do you espouse? And I'll give you the one the one factor that drives everything a Delta pilot does, and that's passenger yeah. safety. And so, how did how do they transfer that? Well, you know, they talk to them about it. They they act as role models in those particular cases. And if the mentoring relationship doesn't work out, they cut it quickly and they find another protege that they can adopt. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. So it's it's keying in and identifying on those very succinct values that are the, yes. the fabric of these companies, and and mm-hmm. making sure that that above all is is the goal. That's the passion that, that you're moving towards with all of these relationships. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, if and you were going lo- to mentor somebody, go ahead, go ahead, Bill. No, I was just going to say, uh, do you find that a lot of businesses that you might work with, or in a lot of situations that you've studied, that they have that? Or, or do they need to get to that value statement, for instance? Um, I, I find that minority of, and most of the organizations I study are sport organizations, I find that the minority of organizations really have that, uh, mentoring in place or espoused values that they really are very committed to and it guides your daily actions. Let me give you one example, if you don't mind. Um, I don't know if you follow uh, basketball, but the National Basketball Association, one of the dominant teams over the last decade, has been the San Antonio Spurs. Uh, The head coach is Greg Popovich. Well, one of his assistant coaches uh, two years ago was hired to coach the Atlanta Hawks. His name is Mike Budenholzer. And Mike brought the similar set of values that he had learned under his, his tutelage with Greg 17 years, brought that to the Atlanta Hawks. Well, in two years, in two years, the Atlanta Hawks established the second best record in basketball, and Mike was named the NBA Coach of the Year this year in his second year. And so to me, that that's um, representative of just the power of uh, a strong mentorship. And if you talk to uh, Mike about it, uh, Greg Popovich was uh, enormously influential in uh, his, his uh, choices as the kind of coach he wanted to be. Fascinating. It really is yeah. an amazing a transference of, of uh, skills and values. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I guess I guess what I'm getting at for a lot of our listeners probably is you have to study and learn that there is a, a right way to do this, but there it's something mm-hmm. that needs to be done. And so what are some of your, um, your more surprising findings that you found as you studied experts? Um, to me, the most surprising one is the people that you actually think would be the best mentors um, in most cases really aren't, and we haven't figured out that why that is. Um, just a, a real quick example, most people would uh, identify Vince Lombardi as one of the greatest football coaches of all time. Well, none of his assistant coaches were ever successful as National Football League coaches. Hmm. And he and he had a slew of them. Yeah, see, you're surprised as well, aren't you? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, other, yeah. Yeah. On the other hand, one of the most successful uh, mentors in the National Football League is a gentleman named Bill Parcell. Um, he's had, I believe, seven. And what we mean by successful coaches is they've gone on and they established winning records, 
and they've won a championship of some kind. Uh, maybe not the Super Bowl, but perhaps the conference championship. Bill Parcells has had seven or eight coaches who have who have established that, which is a remarkable record. What's the What's the missing ingredient? That's what we're after. I'm really okay. not sure what it is, and that's why we're, we've just been approved to do a study with hopefully Coach Parcells and then a few other coaches that are that have that similar record because we really would like to know what, what really makes the difference between somebody who uh, is successful in their profession versus somebody who is able to mentor somebody to be successful also in their profession. Yeah, I'm sure like on I, your list is was there is it was there a desire to transfer the values and the information? Was there a specific intent to do so? Um, mm-hmm. What other fact? What other factors are on your list? That's well, the desire to transfer information. One of the factors that we want to explore is um, the mentor's willingness to invest in somebody who uh, may be a little different than they are. Oftentimes, we want to create somebody in our own image or we want somebody to live vicariously through us. Uh, just a simple example that at, if you go to most, most youth sport games, you'll see parents sitting in the stands yelling at their kids for striking out. Well, you know, the reason that most kids strike out, it's genetic. Um, and so they're yelling at people that they want their kids to be successful, but yet in their own right, they weren't quite as successful. Uh, so mentors, really effective mentors, try to target who you are, Bill. Like, let's say, for example, you're my protege. Who are you? And what's going to be, what's going to make you most successful in what you can do? Um, and again, I'll role model the skills I have. I'll role model the values I believe drive me to be successful. But ultimately, it's, it's in your lap as to who you're going to be and what you're going to be. And I think people who are effective mentors realize it's not about me as a mentor. It's about the protege. And I'm dedicated to your success. That makes a lot of sense. So egocentric people might not be a good mentor uh, for people because they're thinking too much about themselves and maybe the shortcomings they see in themselves and trying to correct that in somebody else. Same with uh, right. maybe dads and dads and sons and that type of thing. I, I get your point. Exactly. So your book is mm-hmm. your book is called Five Steps to Expert: How to Go from Business Novice to Elite Performer. I'm afraid. We didn't get too much into that topic today, but we we certainly I, I certainly think it was a valuable use of our time. Tell us a little bit about your book and in the minute or so we have left. Well, we were interested to find out how does one develop to be an expert, and in in particular, we were interested in why does one stop along the the path to becoming an expert, and we were able to identify not only our research but the research of others. Uh, the specific characteristics that kind of represent a move from one stage to another. Let me give you a quick example. The first stage being a beginner or novice stage. Most beginners or novices, and by the way, length of experience is not determined if you move in experience, uh, expertise. Most beginners or novices don't look at themselves for failure. They look outside themselves. For example, if I'm a real estate person, why am I not being able to sell houses? Well, mortgages are too hard to get. Um, prices are too high. People don't have the income that they once had. In other words, all the reasons I'm not successful don't have anything to do with me. The day you accept responsibility for your own success is the day you say, okay, everybody faces the same playing field. What do I need to do to be successful? And that's the difference between moving from novice up to the next level we call capable. And we find that there's a series of things like that that people do that actually do move them up to the next level. 
It's fascinating research. I can't wait to to read the book myself. And uh, Dr. Shemp, I would love to have you come back on and and we can get deeper into that topic at another time because it is fascinating. And again, a lot of our listeners, I think we got a lot of value out of today from a mentorship standpoint. A lot of our listeners are saying, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do if I sell my business, but I'd like to be able to transfer the knowledge and prove that my expertise and share it with the world. So let's sure. let's talk about that at another time, definitely. In the meanwhile, uh, for our uh, listeners out there, how do they get in touch with you best? Uh, the easiest way would be uh, through email, and that's uh, P-S-C-H-E-M-P-P at U-G-A, University of Georgia, dot E-D-U. Or you can just Google me, Paul Shemp, and uh, it'll come right up. That would be that's the easiest S- way. That's S-C-H-E-M-P-P. M, right. S C H E M P P. Paul, thanks so much. That's it was a very great. fascinating interview. I, I really enjoyed talking with you. And again, I look forward to the next time we speak. Um, thanks, thanks for joining us. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back after this. Thanks. Does thinking about what will happen to your business if you're gone keep you awake at night? Will you get the price you need from your business to carry you through retirement? The BEI Network of Exit Planning Professionals is the world's leading advisor network with the power to help business owners transition out of business on their own timeline and terms. Ask your most trusted advisor to create a BEI plan for you or visit us at ExitPlanning.com. That's ExitPlanning.com. You're listening to ExitCoachRadio.com the information station for age 50-plus business owners, where we're interviewing top advisors for their best tips, ideas, and precautions so you can be well-planned. We upload new one-minute tips every day. ExitCoachRadio.com. Come listen for a minute. Thank you for listening to Exit Coach Radio. 